For more resources, visit rym.org. The Local Youth Worker is a daily podcast that's centered on five questions each week. Ranging from the practical to the professional, we're looking for answers to the questions you're asking. Whether you're in full-time, part-time, or even volunteer youth ministry, this podcast is for you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Local Youth Worker, a daily podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. I'm your host, John Parrott. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Justin Holcomb. Uh, Justin, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me on and looking forward to our time together. Absolutely. Uh, Justin is an Anglican minister and a professor of theology and Christian thought at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and Reformed Theological Seminary. He previously taught at the University of Virginia and Emory University. Justin holds an MA in Theological Studies and an MA in Christian Thought from Reformed Theological Seminary and a PhD from Emory University. He serves on the boards for Rest, Real Escape from the Sex Trade, and Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in Christian Environments. He has authored or edited uh, 15 books. Uh, he is the co-author, along with his wife, Lindsay, of Rid of My Disgrace, Hope and Healing for Victims of Sexual Assault, Is It My Fault, and God Made All of Me, a book to help children protect their bodies. Uh, Justin, before we get into the topic of our discussion today, why don't you tell us a little bit more about uh, yourself, your family, as well as uh, the ministry that you're, you're currently involved in? Yeah, thanks. Uh, well, I live in Orlando, Florida, um, born and raised in Sarasota, so went to seminary in Orlando at Reformed Theological Seminary, um, 95 to 97, and then uh, we moved back to be near family, so been married for 12 years and have my wife and I have two young daughters who are eight and ten, and we added a dog, uh, which has been with us for <laughs> four days, Sheldon, and uh, so that's that's been fun for the girls, and uh, and I I got into, I mean I, I'm I'm trained as you you know just read and and told everyone the uh, in, in theological studies, and. <laughs> And systematic theology and philosophy and apologetics. I teach apologetics and philosophy at Reformed Theological Seminary, and every once in a while I teach systematics. Um, I'm I'm not formally trained in you know victim trauma advocacy. My wife has a master's in public health with a uh, focus on violence against women. And when we were dating, and early uh, in her first year of marriage, she was a case manager for a domestic violence shelter, and then she switched over to be a case manager for a sexual assault crisis center. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, this, the conversation we're going to have and some of the, the main books that we've written on this, um, the, the domestic abuse, sexual abuse, the children's book, are really because it's kind of the blending of you know, our specialties together. Uh, so the, I mean, I, I've, what I'm mostly known for is uh, abuse and ministry conversation, and that's really because I'm riding my coattail, the coattails of my wife, who uh, uh, she kind of introduced me to the world, and I, I brought some ministry theology reflections to it. But she's the kind of the anchor on the issue. So uh, I think that's the the big stuff I've been in. I just enjoy teaching. That that's part time, uh, full time. I 
I'm focused on, you know, in I work for the the Episcopal Diocese of Central Florida, and I help oversee leadership development. So people who are getting ordained, going through the ordination process, church planting, uh, would like to start university ministry outreach, that kind of stuff. So a bunch of we have 84 churches that we are uh, working together. So trying to do the church growth, church planting, and just faithful preaching. So that's that's my uh, my normal uh, full time responsibilities. Hmm. So, so not a whole lot going on, just pretty laid back. <laughs> Chilling out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, a lot on your plate for sure. And it, it, as I say repeatedly on this podcast, just taking the time out to, to come on here. We really appreciate it with all you have uh, going on. Um, and as our listeners can probably gather from your bio, and as you just stated, we will be talking about issues surrounding sexual assault. And let me just go ahead and say off the bat, uh, the book, Rid of My Disgrace, that I referenced in your bio, which is available through Crossway, um, has been such a helpful resource. I mean, I can remember when it was released, getting this with our youth ministry and having our youth staff go through this and then using this at parent orientations uh, was just a very helpful resource. And I, I think it, it seems, and you can talk about this a little bit more later, it seems like it kind of maybe opened the door uh, to more resources being pr- produced and more discussion on this. So all of that to say, thank you for your work. And we're um, glad to uh, get to have this conversation with you today. Well, that's really that's really encouraging, but just to hear any story of leaders and ministers using it, uh, I mean, it's a tool that gets used by those who are uh, doing all the hard work of ministry with real lives, real families, real people, real situations. So that's just encouraging to hear. And I mean, this is talking to you is something that I make time for because you know, you every every person who listens likely represents because you you know what you're doing is getting some of the leaders, some of the gatekeepers. I know not everyone is doing reformed youth ministry, but mm-hmm. the most part they are. And so you have between uh, you know five and maybe hundreds of people represented by every single listener there. So the, just the the influence that this affords is is spectacular. And if if more people have that story that you just said, which is, hey, we, we, we got some policies, procedures. We think we know how to respond to um, some really horrible stories that we're hearing in faithful ways. I mean, that's that's the most fulfilling thing that my wife and I could ever hear. So mm-hmm. thanks for passing it on and, and thanks for you know making time for uh, your podcast to, to do this. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, that, that really is our prayer uh, that this uh, conversation today really helps serve our brothers and sisters in Christ and uh, the churches that are reaching the next generation. Um, so with, with that said, uh, let's, let's begin by defining sexual assault or, or sexual abuse. This might seem like maybe a funny place for some people to start, that it seems kind of straightforward, but I think the more you begin to think about it, it, it can be complex. So could you begin by just defining sexual assault for us? Yeah, I'm just going to give you one sentence. It's a long sentence, but one sentence defining sexual assault. The term that is best used is sexual assault. Uh, Sexual abuse is frequently uh, referring to sexual abuse of minors. Uh, Rape is a particular form of sexual assault. And and when I give you the definition, we don't want to be too broad in our definition where, you know, literally absolutely everything could be considered sexual assault or so narrow that in too often legally sometimes only you know rape forced sexual intercourse is considered sexual assault and that's way too narrow so sexual assault is any type of sexual behavior or contact 
where consent is not freely given or obtained and is accomplished through numerous ways, force, intimidation, violence, coercion, threat, deception, or abuse of authority. Let me give you that again. Sexual assault is any type of sexual behavior contact. That's the first part, sexual behavior contact, where consent is not freely given or obtained and is accomplished through force, intimidation, violence, coercion, manipulation, threat, deception, or abuse of authority. So there's really three parts to that. Any type of sexual behavior or contact, that makes complete sense. It's not just contact. There are, um, I've heard horror stories of ways that husbands have forced their wives to do things, even though there was no contact with them in particular. But um, so, and, and we don't have to get into details. We don't want to activate people's trauma that they've already experienced mm-hmm. by getting too detail oriented. But it could be any type of contact or behavior. The other piece is about consent. You know, are both people old enough to consent? Do both people have the capacity to consent? Are are they both sober? Are they old enough? And did both agree to the contact or behavior? If the answer is no to any of those, then there's not consent. And so you have one piece is sexual behavior contact, two, consent, and then three, the methodology that this is done. And that's why through physical force, um, intimidation, intoxication, uh, someone who's incapacitated uh, because of medicine or age. There's numerous ways that the sin and crime can be done. So that's the kind of the technical definition. And as you can see, it's not not too narrow. It's, it's not just particular kind, but it's also not so broad that everything counts. And that the the importance of that is we want to have a definition that's basically consistent with the legal, psychological, sociological, kind of therapeutic and ministry um, disciplines. And and we've we've uh, not been criticized for that definition. That's a good working definition that people in ministry can kind of roll with and should set the foundation for how they reflect and think about it. Hmm. Yes. I mean, it's, it's excellent. And for sure, I mean, just the need for it to be broad. I mean, if we just want to think about kind of theologically alone, how our heart uh, being sinful justifies uh, our sin all the time. And we think of just broader definitions. I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, Tim Chester's definition of pornography and I'm kind of paraphrasing, but basically using anything, whether it was intended for that purpose or not, for sexual titillation or gratification. And again, I'm yeah. I'm paraphrasing, but but it helps to to just broaden that, um, so we you know don't excuse something uh, that might be, or even to those that we're going to be you know talking about who have been victimized to just think, oh well, this was no big deal. No broadening that can help them see. No, you you have been abused, um, and you need to you know seek help. And again, that's that's more of what we're going to get into later, but I think a definition like that is uh, very helpful and, and needed. Let me, let me tell you. Let me tell you why. Total agreement. Let me just unpack that a little bit. Uh, frequently, and we were surprised by this. Frequently, people will be uh, reading the book, and they'll read the definition, and then they'll start reading. We actually go through like a page or two in the book of um, things that would count as sexual assault. And, and sometimes we do that and they go, oh my goodness, or we'll go through the effects. And it's usually through either specific descriptions or the effects people go, wait a second, that's why what happened to me was so significant is because I've actually experienced sexual assault. Oh my, and so it's been amazing to watch people like the light go on. And for example, um, one case that I was been helping out on in a, in a local church, um, uh, a, a parent was... Um, 
looking through the window of his child's window to the room when the child was changing and self-stimulating. Well, mm. that's, that's voyeurism. And when the child finds out that the person who's been charged with protecting you is literally getting off at the side of like that has its own set of trauma involved when that's in. So that, that, that's another form of, and that's illegal. You can't do that. That's also a sin. And so, mm -hmm. uh, and so the definition we're giving might not always be a crime, but it's always a sin. And, and so we, we get to, we traffic in, in ministry across two lines. Um, if it's, if it's a crime, then we need to deal with it, but sometimes not all sins are crimes. And so that's why I have definition like that's important because because um, there's a lot and, and that just goes to the how many people there are I mean we can get to this later but war, one in four women and one in six men are or will be victims of sexual assault in their lifetime and that's that's actually those are conservative numbers I've mm -hmm. actually started getting, I've been getting criticized which is always good for <laughs> uh, having numbers that were too conservative most people say it's about one in three one in four across the board um, and I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. But I, I just wanted to go with the most conservative numbers I could find. So that basically means one out of five people that any leader in a church is looking at, one in five has likely suffered some pretty significant trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I can remember those numbers initially when I first read, read it. And just thinking, wow. I mean, I remember kind of doing a double take, looking back over and just seeing those stats. And then also, as I said, referenced uh, having a parent orientation meeting, kind of sharing some of those numbers and just, you know, our responsibility as adults in the church to uh, to protect in any way that we could. Um, but again, like you said, that broad definition is vitally important. And uh, Justin, I know you referenced uh, your wife and some of her background in education and some of what she's been uh, doing and how she spent time uh, in this area, but also kind of share your passion uh, for this topic. And I know that uh, really connects with your story. So do you mind sharing a little bit about your story with us? Don't mind at all. Uh, there's really three reasons why my wife and I got into this. One is professional because my wife was a case manager, as I mentioned. I was a professor. I actually taught for the women's studies department at the University of Virginia. We taught. I taught a class called violence, violence, gender, and poverty. So professionally, we were both involved. Um, and then pastorally, I'm involved because I'm a minister, and and my wife serves at churches um, doing just like lay. Um, lay pastoral care type of counseling. And then personally, and when we mentioned that professionally, pastorally, personally, everyone just assumed, oh, poor Lindsay. Well, Lindsay, thankfully, didn't experience it. It was me when I was um, 11, 12, a, an extended family member uh, sinned against me and committed a crime against me. And it would, it's, it's sexual assault. So I know, I know the feeling and I'm looking forward to unpacking that a little bit more, which is really powerful for, for ministry. Um, I know the feeling of shame and how confusing shame can be, especially as a, a 11, 12, 13-year-old when you already have something happen to you, your body's changing, you got some hormones, and puberty's kicking in, and you're, you're you know, that's a, an unbelievably confusing time already. And then you throw in a family member who you think you could and should be able to trust, mm doing things to you that are really confusing and especially for being a boy. Um, and I'm not saying especially, but the, the special confusion for a boy is that when, when boys are sinned and a crime has committed against them in this way, physiologically, um, girls and women can experience pleasure during an assault 
frequently it's, it can be more violent and painful. For boys, when something happens, there's a physiological response that could be pleasurable, and it can also be painful, but that's really confusing. Mm-hmm. When something being done to you physiologically feels good, but emotionally, psychologically, spiritually can be traumatizing, that's unbelievably confusing. So um, that's kind of, that's my story. Where And, and thankfully, I just had good parents who um, I, I didn't feel shame. They told me I could talk to them about anything, and um, I never... It, it didn't, the effect of it wasn't as, it had its effects, but it, it wasn't, the effects weren't as bad as they could have been. Um, and God was gracious. And that's just God's, you know, special grace, common grace, just as grace, whatever kind of category it was, that uh, it, it didn't wreak as much havoc as it could have in my life. Mm. And, and yet to, to ask about that too, of just you having good parents and, and this leads into a, a question of, you know, what are some possible signs of abuse and some of those, you know, might be obvious signs, but some of those that are a little more obscure. I mean, did your parents notice you acting a certain way or did they see some of these signs? So maybe just kind of helping us know what, what are some of these signs and maybe weaving your own story into that? Yeah. Th- well, actually, my story is not that helpful because I just kind of told my parents almost <laughs> immediately. I'm like, here you go. So they didn't even have, there was no time for them to see any signs. But there are some signs. And I'm thinking particularly of um, young children up to teenagers. So it'll be a, it'll be a spectrum. Um, one is if especially, well, this is across the board, but especially if they're young, if a young child has information about their body or private parts or how sex or sexuality works that is not in line with uh, what they would normally know at three or five or six or eight. When a three-year-old starts talking about um, putting toys in certain parts of his body or if if they know certain things, that's an indication. Uh, if, If a child is hyper sexualized about things or if they are uh, asexual or like or there's there's a withdrawal or an avoidance of even talking about the topic of bodies or depending on age again so you can really go in um, two directions uh, a kind of hyper awareness of it or a avoidance of body touch sexuality sex desire that kind of thing others appetite is can be a part of it hmm. uh, disrupted sleep patterns, nightmares. If a child, especially young one, but this works again for teenagers too. If, if a, if a child doesn't want to be around someone and if they have a really clear, like, I don't like being around that person, that could be an indication that something has happened. So, uh, I, I usually tell parents, um, you know, your child better than anyone else. If you go with your gut, uh, I, that's honestly been, people have told me that's the most helpful thing, which is like, mm-hmm. I couldn't put my finger on it. I could tell something was wrong. It was this subtle change with their eating behavior, this subtle change with their sleeping. They became more withdrawn or they became very extroverted. There's a significant shift in their personality. Uh, they don't like being around so-and-so they avoid a certain place. Uh, all of those things go with your gut and risk having the, uh, conversation and, and if you start the conversation about this at an early age, it, uh, it makes it, uh, it, if you hear some noise in the background, that's the dog. Eating. <laughs> no problem. Um, uh, if, if you start this at an early age, it becomes a lot easier to talk about it when they're 10, 12, 14, 16, 18. Um, 
if so, and again, we can get into that on some of the more helpful things as I know we have plenty of time, so I don't want to uh, go down the rabbit hole on those until you think it's helpful. But those are the those are the basic signs to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Now, that's helpful. And I mean, just a, <clears throat> a plug for your book, God Made All of Me. I mean, I can remember, and again, that's available through New Growth Press, but, you know, using that with my own children and <clears throat> a lot of what you say in the book, and I know there's, a, I think, a Gos- the Gospel Coalition article out there that y'all, uh, that you and Lindsay wrote of uh, the importance of talking about these things at a young age and preparing your children for these discussions. Um, yeah, vitally important. Yeah, but just in well, the Sorry, go, what that, go ahead. What that does, and we'll get to it, I know, because we're, we're going to get to like what, what, what can parents actually do for their children. But if you start the conversation about body parts, touch, inappropriate touch, uh, that kind of thing, then when you do that when they're six, it's normal. Like we, our girls think it's normal for us to say, hey, did you feel comfortable with the babysitter? It's not, it's not an out of the blue from nowhere, like, well, why wouldn't we feel comfortable? And if you talk about tricky people, that's a good phrase for, hey, there's some tricky people in the world. Not, you know, not everyone's not creepy, but there are some tricky people. And, and, you know, and do you feel comfortable around it? If you don't feel comfortable, you know, let us know. And so when you make that normal at an early age, it's only awkward for the parents and it shouldn't be, but you can actually mitigate against that by starting as young as possible. And if you, if your kids, if your children are older, then just start the conversation now. Don't wait. Get the on ramp. Get the get the pathway cleared. So if they need to come and talk to you, they know they can. Mm, yeah, very very good advice. Uh, very important, Justin. To go back to something you said about some of the possible signs. I mean, you mentioned you know appetite and sleep patterns, um, and I think of yes. you know of course those who are listening might just get terrified of thinking, okay, well my my child wakes up in the night or my child doesn't eat. Could you be a, a little more specific or go into some more detail maybe about the, those two specifically? And again, trying not to just create uh, concern or worry where it shouldn't be there, but also, you know, we, we want to be sure to uh, be discerning when we see these in our own children. Yeah, that's great because I don't want to make parents uh, nervous or anxious unnecessarily. So just just so all the parents out there know, uh, we have eight and 10 year olds and my eight year old has regular nightmares. And as there, we have no reasons to think that she has had anything bad happen to her in, with regard to the topics we're talking about. My 10 year old wakes up regularly. And so she has disturbed sleep patterns and that's just the way she is. So it, just because they uh, have nightmares and wake up doesn't that, that in itself doesn't trigger anything for me. So now if my, if my other of my daughters started having nightmares about someone harming them or a, a, particularly about their body, that would get my attention. Because what happens is when, and this happens with children, like infants and toddlers, when, when the brain is processing things, so like when a child starts to teethe and starts to crawl and starts to walk, that's when their sleep gets disturbed because their brain's processing and getting ready for this new thing of what the body's trying to do. So when you have trauma happen to the body, it affects the soul and mind. And what happens is so sleep will become disturbed and they'll start having nightmares, that kind of thing. Or appetite. If, if someone, you know, I have one child who um, I know when she wants to eat. She's not a breakfast person. She's kind of a lunch person, but give her dinner and she goes to town. Well, the other one is a breakfast girl. She loves breakfast and I, I just kind of know them. And so if suddenly they just started, stopped eating um, or 
uh, started eating a lot more that doesn't fit. Now, they could be growing. But again, parents know their kids. And if something's out of whack, uh, or if suddenly the, per- the teacher, pastor they really liked, or their friend, their neighborhood friend that they really liked, suddenly becomes a point of avoidance, well, maybe they made fun of them. Maybe they hurt their feelings by uh, something they said, they lied about them, joked about them, or maybe something more serious happened. And that's where you just have to go find out um, and find out subtly. So, yeah, I, I, th- th- I want to give clues and hints. Uh, I want to give categories of the clues and hints for parents to look for. They don't determine anything, but it, noticing a significant change of what is normal should get your attention. Now that's very helpful. And you've kind of, you've hit on this a little bit, but getting a little more specific, you know, how does it affect people uh, once they've been abused? I mean, physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, uh, give us some, some insight here of just some of those ways in which different individuals can be impacted again, because we want to be sensitive to those that we are possibly uh, dealing with. Well, yeah, it, before we get into the effects, the, to lay the groundwork for the effects, the best word to describe what has happened to someone is trauma. It's pretty traumatic when someone that you know, and most people who are have this happen to them, they actually know the perpetrator. Um, nine, 80 to 90 percent of the perpetrators are known by the victims. It's, it's, so and it's just as traumatic if it's, an, if it's a stranger, too. But it, there's an intensity to the violation of the relationship when it's your parent, your sibling, your pastor, your youth minister, your next door neighbor, your coach, uh, someone like that you know, your friend, or your boyfriend, your girlfriend. It, it's it's so trauma is the best word. So there are there's some phys, there's physical effects. The the effects there's there's numerous types of types of effects. So let's just go through some of the physical effects. Uh, the short term, which could lead into long term, are bruising, broken bones, sexually transmitted infections, nausea and vomiting, migraine headaches, or pregnancy. Long term would be disturbed sleep patterns, nightmares, loss of appetite, insomnia, or stomach pains. So there's the obvious physical effects depending on what type of experience the, the person had. The, the other, and the ones that we deal with most, and we're not medical medical uh, experts, so we don't do anything with the physical except tell people to go to doctors, but the other one are the emotional and psychological effects, and the list of types of things are really long, and but these are important, just to give like a, a large, a, a, a wide spectrum. Self-blame is one of them. Shame or guilt, anxiety, stress, fear impaired memory or confusion or disorientation, uh, anger or aggression, sexualized behavior, a loss of a sex drive, being hypervigilant, like always being on guard, or PTSD. I mean, the, the list is longer than that, but those give you a pretty wide spectrum of what the effects would be. Spiritually, and the categories we deal with in our book, Written My Disgrace, kind of went for the emotional, psychological, and spiritual and we went through both by research and anecdotally from people that we've come alongside to, to serve. The first one is denial or minimizing. People have a tendency to deny or minimize what happened to them. The second big one is distorted self-identity or low self-esteem, but distorted identity. Third, we deal with is shame. And then fourth is guilt. Fifth, 
is anger. And sixth is despair or depression. We'll put those together. So we, we kind of went for the, those are the top six. Denial, distorted identity or self-esteem, shame, guilt, anger, and despair. Those are the emotional, psychological, spiritual effects. Hmm. And, and something you say, and you, you mentioned this, I think one of the, the first ones you mentioned was, was self-blame. And I know that's something that you point out in your book, Root of My Disgrace, is that you know, people that are sexually abused often feel like it's their fault. Uh, can, can, you, can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Why, why do those who have been abused feel like it's their fault? Just help us understand this a little bit more. Sure. Well, one, one the, there's a few different reasons why that would happen. One is because they feel shame and they feel like they're damaged goods. They feel dirty. Now, the feelings that go along with shame are very similar. And shame doesn't you can feel shame for something that you've done. Frequently, people feel shame because of what's done to them. Now, the feeling of shame is very similar to the feeling of guilt. So if everyone can kind of think to um, something that they've done where they are to blame, they've committed a sin or a crime, and that feeling of uh, hypervigilance, uh, you replaying it in your head, I did this, I can't believe I did this. Those feelings, shame and guilt, actually have very similar emotional overlap. So m- many people, when they are describing guilt to me, I will, and it can, if it's helpful, I will say, hey, maybe that's shame. May- maybe there's something else going on there. W- one example is there was a woman who, let me, I can, and I have permission to tell her story, uh, and I met with her for hours and hours and hours, numerous times with her and her husband, and the very first time we met, she told me her story, and I said, I'm so sorry that you were sinned against in this way and that this crime has been committed to you. It's not your fault. And she got angry at me. And I thought, that's not what I was expecting. Why? And so I said it again to make sure she heard me. She, she got angrier. I said, I'm confused. Can you please tell me? I, I, apparently, I made you angry. Can you tell me what I did or said? And she said, the, I, I need the grace of God for this. And the only way I have to plug into the grace of God is his grace for guilt, for sin. He died on the cross, so I'd be forgiven of my sins. If I want to get the grace of God, then I, this needs to be my responsibility so I can be forgiven of it. And I said, so basically, I was unplugging her from the grace of God by telling it it wasn't her fault. Wow. I was just, and I said, oh, no, the, 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 the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus— is for guilt of sin. He did die on the cross for our sins, but he also died to conquer our enemy by rising. He died and rose again. Colossians, he nailed shame on the cross. He triumphed over Satan's sin, hell, death, and the grave, and the resurrection. He's conquered our enemy. And his perfect life, his active obedience, is why we are considered righteous. His righteousness is imputed to us. So there's at least three things happening with the ministry of Christ. He died for our sins, died and rose again for our sins. He died and rose again to conquer our enemy, and he died and rose again, so we're imputed righteousness. We're imputed righteous. So the good news, justification, we know this from confessions, our justification is that our sins are forgiven and we are declared righteous. And the lights went on. She looked at me and said, well, that changes everything. <laughs> so, uh, so theologically, shame and guilt are similar. Another reason is that Perpetrators frequently tell people, 
things like, well, you know, dirty things happen to dirty children. I did this because you're dirty. And or, well, didn't you ask for it? Like I did this because I thought you wanted me to touch you there. I thought you I thought that felt good. And so you have um, perpetrators telling people that their victims are to blame. You also have American culture is distinctively uh, victim blaming for various reasons. So, but American culture likes to blame victims partially because we like our nice American myth that everything's okay. Suffering's not that bad. Mm. And, and stories of survival of sexual abuse disrupt that narrative and they don't make us feel safe. And so we do this victim blaming like, well, of course the 19 year old had that thing happen to her by a bunch of frat guys because she was wearing a miniskirt and she drank too much. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you expect? Boys will be boys. We have this victim blaming narrative that gets done pretty quickly. Um, and I've heard some horror stories. What I just told you is a common one, but I've heard worse things about eight, no, the eight year old girl seduced the pastor. Mm -hmm. What world are you living in where that makes sense? Well, in a victim blaming world. And then another reason. So you have, you have shame and guilt are overlapping frequently in their emotions. Perpetrators likely have said things to them. We live in a victim-blaming culture. And the fourth one that I can think of is because the human heart defaults to karma. If something bad happens to us, we think God's trying to get us or the power of the universe is trying to get us. And, I mean, I hmm. three years ago, I mean, I'm a grown man who preaches the, the grace of God found in Jesus Christ on a regular basis. I teach systematic theology. I'm an apologetics professor. I know better. But when my house flooded, I assumed that God was getting me because maybe my, <laughs> my tithe amount wasn't as high as it should have been. Like, I went straight to, well, I guess God, like, that's just, <laughs> that's just how our hearts work. So mm -hmm. if the human heart defaults to Pelagian theology and karma, then when something bad happens, people go, well— this happened over here probably because and I've heard this this is heartbreaking I've heard I've heard grown women say to me well my husband rapes me because God's disciplining me because when I was 14 I had I had an abortion hmm. Hmm. A woman to think that her husband's raping her because God's getting her back for having an abortion at 14 hmm. that's the heartbreaking stuff or um, because I'm, because I'm not a, because I'm not a good dad, this happened to me because when I was 15, I used to beat up my brother, God's disciplining me. And when I was 18, he had my coach do this to me to discipline me, get me back. Let me just tell everybody, um, God disciplines those that he loves. Hmm. He doesn't assault them. Because he loves them, though. Discipline and assault are very different things. Usually his discipline is uh, very different. It's not a sin and it's not going to be a crime done against you. Uh, it's usually out of his gentleness. The way God disciplines me is uh, when I'm becoming selfish, he'll prompt my wife or children to tell me how wonderful of a husband or dad I am. <laughs> <laughs> When your conscience gets seared, that feels like discipline, not not wonderful blessings. Like, oh, God, I don't deserve this. His discipline is a little bit different, a lot different than the way we think his discipline is. So, um, yeah, that's, 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 those are at least four reasons why um, people who have been sinned against or had a crime committed against think it's their fault. So I hope that helps. Because it is, it is a confusing thing. You're like, wait, it's so obvious to everyone else that it's not your fault. 
Mm-hmm. Why do you think it's your fault? That can be a really disorienting thing for people doing pastoral ministry care for, for survivors. Mm-hmm. And like you just said, I mean, giving the example uh, where you were counseling the, the woman and uh, husband, and uh, she reacted in anger towards something you thought would be very gracious and, and loving. And so I know this follow-up question here is a very broad answer uh, because of all the examples you just gave us. But, you know, what would an abused person want others to know? Um, just any insight there, because again, this could be a lot of different things. And, um, but yeah, just some, uh, you know, some advice on what they would like others uh, to know. I've got, uh, three things for this. So it's not going to be that broad. One is how powerful and how healing listening to them actually is. The second one is how powerful and healing believing them actually is. So let me unpack those. They really go together. So let me unpack those, and then I'll move on to the third one. Uh, there's been research on victims or survivors. And by the way, just um, use the language of victim or survivor. Uh, it's interchangeable. Uh, some people like to use – our book title is Rid of My Disgrace – uh, hope and healing for victims of sexual assault. And people criticize us and go, oh, well, they're survivors. Like, well, um, not always. Uh, so, some people don't feel like survivors. And when you, when you say, no, you, have to, you, you, tell, you tell a victim that they have to use survivor language, when they feel, suddenly you're just giving them another place where they feel low self-esteem. They're like, oh, great. I don't even feel like a survivor, so I can't even do that right. I can't even be a victim right because they the trauma of their life does not to them look like surviving. It looks like they're a victim and they're trying to get their hands and their soul around what happened to them. They don't feel like they're surviving and thriving. So forcing them to take on an identity of survivor doesn't help. But for some people, uh, calling them a survivor is, is it helps voice, uh, boister, strengthen, uh, bolster. That's the word bolster <laughs> their, their sense of, uh, strength and bravery. Like, yeah, I did survive that. So, uh, victim and survivor can be interchangeable. Think of it pastorally. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, there's research on, you know, what are, what are 10 different things that people can do? What have you found to be the most helpful? And they gave them 10 different behaviors and things. The number one, far and away number one, like it wasn't even a close, there's no close second on this one, is being listened to and believed. Mm-hmm. Now, that should be really encouraging to everyone listening because everyone's thinking, well, I haven't written a book on this. I don't have a master's in public health with a specialty in violence against women. I don't have a PhD in theology. I haven't studied this. And the the number one thing everyone can do is listen to them and believe them. The power of that in the for healing, God uses that in a really powerful way. It's amazing to see. And that's proven by research. People have said that's what they need to be done. So what that looks like practically is when people tell you their story, say, clearly say, thank you for telling me that story. Signal to them that you've just listened to them. Thank you for trusting me with what you just said. I am so sorry that happened to you. I believe you and I am sorry. Those are really simple words anyone can say. Mm -hmm. And when you say that, it's carrying the burden. That's the language of you are caring. You have just come alongside them. You've just emotionally kind of gotten underneath that burden a little bit and you lightened a little bit because now there's someone else who knows the story and tell them like, I'm like the courage it took for you to say that to me. 
It blows my mind. Thank you for trusting me. Thank you for the courage uh, for doing that. That's one thing. This one and two together. The other one is, um, um, well, there's a, there's actually a few more, um, <laughs> is being, being aware of not what to say and what not to say. Mm-hmm. I think they'd want to know, like, you don't need to theologically edit God and protect God. Of Some of the questions might be like, like, I'm not sure why this happened. Don't jump in with some type of weird platitude like, well, God has his reasons. Or he, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't, don't theologically edit their emotions for them. If the psalmist can write the psalms, uh, surely people can kind of go, I'm not really sure how this whole thing works out. Um, that's another, another powerful piece that I think they would want people to know is just let me tell the story. Don't ask, don't ask, um, uh, pointed questions. Don't, don't become a voyeur on their story. Like, so what is that? Don't ask for details on, they might tell you that, but they might not want to describe it because them describing it might actually, uh, activate, trigger some pretty dark things. They know it's there, but when you start retelling the specifics of the story, you can relive it and memory doesn't know time. Um, you know, time doesn't heal wounds. And so triggering their memory for pain might not be as helpful as, you know, telling the whole story. So just trust them to tell you the story as they want to unpack it. Mm. Now that, that's, that's very helpful, Justin. And, and I mean, like you said, this can sound overwhelming. And obviously this is uh, some very weighty subject material we're discussing. But to, uh, again, boil it down to listening and believing someone. Um, I mean, again, that's something like you said, you don't need a master's or a Ph.D. to do. Um, and so that's just a very helpful starting point uh, for us, for sure. And uh, Justin, to, to follow back up too, um, and as we started the local youth or, youth worker podcast, we obviously started it for youth workers, but we've been very encouraged by how many parents uh, listen uh, to this podcast as well. And so, uh, for for the youth workers and parents uh, who are, who are listening and might suspect, you know, abuse and uh, their own child or a student in their uh, ministry, how can they best help them? And I know you, you've given some just then of uh, how we can can listen and, and believe, but but what's some some best ways and and how they can help them, and maybe even kind of following up with that, how they can possibly even draw them out. Yeah, good question, great question. One thing is to be a listening personality. So that, that sounds really broad, but think about there's. You know, and I'm not trying to get all self helpy but the basics of how to win friends and how to win friends and influence people by uh, uh, whatever his name is. Carnegie. But the number one rule on that is say people's names, smile, and talk about their favorite topic, which is them. Uh, <laughs> so if you go to a party and get people to talk about themselves, you'll be the hit of the party, and you won't tell anyone anything about yourself. People are. That's just general. You, we've all been around people who you go to a dinner party and they talk about, you know, they're the me monster. I think it's Brian Reagan. His, <laughs> Brian his, Reagan. That's right. Yeah. The me, 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 me. <laughs> uh, so if you're a parent or a youth minister and, and you always have to be in lecture mode, you always have to be in data transference. You always have to be framing the conversation. You always have to be leading the conversation then uh, be aware of that. Be, so self-awareness needs to kick in a little bit. First, no one likes that. They actually don't think you're as smart and as wonderful as you think you are. <laughs> um, they're putting up with it because you're in charge. Uh, but ask them about themselves, just in general. Get them talking about other things. So if you're suspecting something, say, hey, hun, you know, how was school today? 
you know, what, what, who are your favorite friends? Why do you like them? Like, just get into their life, know the terrain of their life, know the contours, know, like, kind of have a mental map of their world, ask about their world. That way, when you come in swooping out of the blue asking about, has anyone touched your private parts? It's not like, whoa, where did you come from all of a sudden? <laughs> so you have to be a listening presence. <clears throat> the other one is to invite communication. One way you can do that at, at an age-appropriate level, um, my girls don't know what happened to me yet. One is because we're not worried about what's happened with them because we don't think anything has happened. We ask them point blank. But probably when my girls are about 10, I'll probably tell them a very cleaned up or cleaned up makes it sound like it was dirty. Uh, see, mm-hmm. the language is powerful. Mm-hmm. A very... Um, careful age appropriate version of my story to them because um, i want them to know like oh that happened to that and my wife and i will probably at maybe when they're 13 or 14 tell them some of the sins that we've committed um sexual and non-sexual sins that we've committed because i want them to know okay my mom and dad need the grace of god for the things that have happened to them and for the things that they have done so the work of Jesus is for things that we've done and things that have been done to us. So I want them to know I'm, I'm a recipient of the grace of God in, in my life. So that what that does is it invites the communication for them to say, so it's happening with my girls now. When we do our confession of sin at church, on the way to church, I just said, hey, you know, we're going to confess sin. You know, this is against God and our neighbor, things that we've done, things that we've left undone. And things we've done in thought, word, and deed. That's a lot, isn't it? And I go, yeah, it is. I go, can you think of things that would fall in any of those categories? And all of a sudden they're like, that's a lot. And my daughter <laughs> said, she goes, I sit a lot. They kind of be aware. <laughs> uh, so, but showing them, hey, when you're sinned against, you also need the grace of God. So I, they, that invites the communication. That way they can go, hey, I was really mean to my sister and I'm like, yeah, that was a sin. You didn't obey mom and dad. That was a sin. Or my friend made fun of me and lied about me to my other friends at school. I'm like, that had to hurt a lot. That happened to me one time. And that's heartbreaking. And it makes you feel like you're alone and isolated. Yeah. So get that kind of going, whatever the age appropriate thing is. And then uh, that's a lot of, you know, laying the groundwork, you know, mm-hmm. being a listening presence, invite communication. And then find ways to dip your toe in the water of the conversation. Hey, I wanted to check in. There's a lot, depending on age appropriate, you know, lots of stuff in the news, or I told you what happened to me, or, hey, I'm not always with you, depending on the age. Do you feel safe with the people that are around you when I'm not there? Do you feel safe at school? Do you feel safe at Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts? Do you feel safe with your coach? Do you feel safe at youth group? Do you feel safe there? Has anyone ever said anything to you that you felt was inappropriate? or touch you in ways that made you feel uncomfortable. Because if they do, I'm going to defend you, and I want to protect you, and I love you, and I want to be able to know about it. Um, so I think you kind of you kind of ease in, and then you kind of go for it. But you have to do some of the groundwork first, because you'll shut them down if you just swoop in with, hey, has anyone touched your private parts just out of the blue? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you suspect things, then also, you know, we, we actually have a, a child – a development psychologist that we've just been having the girls meet with since they were four, four or five, just for educational stuff, just to have another person. Um, mm-hmm. they, they go meet with her. She's, she's a therapist. 
Um, they meet with her about once every six months just to kind of check in like, Hey, how you doing? How's school? And she gives us some just basic insights on this is what I see. There's no presenting reason that they would go to a therapist, except that we want to have another adult who can ask questions that could be a safe place that they can go talk to. Um, and we've also, if, if your child isn't talking to you or you think they might not talk to you out of shame or whatever, whatever reason, um, set up, uh, find out, help them think through who they trust, um, who are safe people in their life that they can trust, you know, a grandparent or a teacher or a pastor or a doctor or a therapist. Help them think through that because the goal is to, is to protect them and for hope and healing for them. Um, you don't have to be the agent for it. You're already the agent if you're doing this, but they might go trust someone else because they just feel so dirty. It's easier to tell someone who's not their family member what happened to them because the shame is so thick. So set them up for success by giving them a list of people they can talk to. Mm, that, that's helpful for sure. And before we go into a little bit of a different direction, and, and you've said some of this, but, but what are some of those things that might seem helpful uh, but could actually harm people as, uh, you know, maybe some common mistakes that uh, parents or youth workers or counselor, whoever, whomever are trying to, you know, engage in conversation and again, being this listening personality, inviting communication. But what are some of those maybe common mistakes that you could uh, prepare or, or guard us from making? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you two big words. And then if I forget one, remind me. Okay. Uh, <laughs> purity and sovereignty. So purity and sovereignty are the two words. So, um, the first one is the way we talk about sexual purity needs to be changed because it's uh, Trillian Newbell uh, wrote an amazing blog post years ago called Why I Wore White on My Wedding Day. And mm. the story is, is that uh, she got criticized for it, by the way, because she said, hey, I've done some things uh, that culturally would not uh, encourage you – know, people would think I shouldn't wear white on my wedding day, but I'm also um, a daughter of Christ and uh, – because he died for me and his act of righteousness is imputed to me, I can wear white. This is symbolic of the true purity I have in Christ. <laughs> and people criticized her and they're like, no, you can't do that. Now all that does is talking about the grace of God for sexual sin. I don't want my daughters reading this. It'll think they can just do whatever they want. So the way we talk about purity needs to be done a little bit better. So youth ministers, if you're listening and all you talk about is don't look at porn, don't masturbate, don't French kiss or whatever the phrase is. Mm -hmm. Like, first of all, let the parents do that for you. That's not your <laughs> job. Um, or at least encourage it broadly. Don't be as detailed. Uh, but also talk about, I mean, if you follow Jesus's standard of uh, how he applies the law, if you've looked at someone lustfully, and that's why I loved your definition of well, chalices, uh, is it chalice or is it, no, it's uh, Chester, Chester. Yeah, that's Tim right. Chester's, both of those guys are great on the topic anyway, but, mm -hmm. um, Tim Chester's definition. I'm like, if you took, if parents and youth ministers took the definition of Jesus on adultery seriously, we'd talk about purity a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. Um, encourage purity. I have two daughters. Of course, I'm going to be talking about purity, but I'm also going to tell them my sins. So they know, Oh, I'm a sinner. Just like my dad's a sinner. Okay, got it. So talk about purity in a wise, uh, Jesus-y way that he would talk about purity. See, the same Jesus who talked about, um, you know, if you look at someone with lust, you've committed adultery, is the same one who, when the adulteress was about to get stoned, said, your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more. Uh, mm -hmm. So have a fuller picture. 
And the other one is talk about the sovereignty of God wisely. Um, if you overemphasize, and I, again, I teach at Reformed Theological Seminary. I love the Westminster Confession. I like uh, uh, you know Article 17 of the 39 Articles of Religion and Anglican World about election, predestination, all of that. I'm on board. <laughs> I, I sign on. I, I, I like it. I, I went to the school, and I teach at the school for a reason. But there's ways that people talk about providence that make it sound like God is the author of evil. Well, the Westminster Confession doesn't allow us to make God the author of evil. And yes, he's sovereign, and he allows things. But when you talk about sovereignty in such a way, youth usually don't have a category for talking about how does human responsibility and God's sovereignty work together. Now, what God, what, what people mean for evil, God can bend into good. Absolutely. Well, just because that's true doesn't mean we kind of go, well, bad things happen. God's sovereign. Like, don't do that to people. Hmm. All, that, all that does is helps them equate what happened to them that was miserable and sucked as if it was like, well, this is what God gave, and this is his will for me, so I better like it. Like, you're allowed to not like the bad things that have happened to you um, and still say that God is sovereign. So talk about purity differently. Talk about sovereignty differently. And, and talk more about how a full-orb picture of the gospel, Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection, has implications for our sins forgiven, the shame of what's been done to us, and our enemy that has been conquered. Like, talk big picture on the wonderful effects of the gospel. And the Bible does this. Uh, uh, Revelation, the picture of the lamb is a slain lamb on a throne. Well, a slain lamb has died for the sins. He's on a throne because he's a king. And uh, Hebrews 2, Colossians 2, other, and I think Romans 5 blend. He died for our sins as a substitutionary atonement. And by doing that, he was the victor over Satan's sin held up in the grave. Those actually go together. He is our substitutionary penal atonement, and he is our victor at the same exact time. Talk about the full orb gospel. Mm, that is so good. I mean, it, yeah, it's just... Thinking about purity uh, more biblically and, you know, as you said, kind of throwing out the old ways in which we thought about it, being cautious of how we talk about God's sovereignty is so helpful. And then obviously the, the gospel and speaking about it more broadly and how it applies here is, again, just very helpful um, for us to kind of move forward and to, to think about um, how to discuss this and, and help those who are hurting. Um, Justin, I know that, you know, many... People in the church stay silent on this. Many churches, you know, stay silent on this issue because it's obviously it's uncomfortable to discuss at times and it's painful, as we've said, to discuss at times. But one of the primary reasons we should discuss this and much of what, you know, you do through your your writing is, is prevention. How can we, you know, prevent this horrific abuse from occurring? So, so what are some of those things that can guard a child from not becoming a victim of sexual abuse. And again, thinking about you know this from the perspective of a parent as well as those who are, are youth workers, what are some things we can do to prevent this from happening? Yep, I'll, I'll do both for the parent and then for churches. So the first thing for a parent, uh, and I'm for, for young children, and this is, we, my wife and I wrote a blog post, and it's at our uh, my website, justinholcomb.com, and it's just around called Nine Things Parents Can Do. And just to, to jump in, let me say we will get all these links, uh, all the books we've referenced, as well as the articles, so we'll get that, that up for sure. Great. So so Nine Things Parents Can Do, uh, and I won't go through all of them. Uh, well, I'll go through really briefly. First, explain to your child that God made their body. So 
just have a theological framework. God made the body and he made it good and he made it on purpose. And you can, depending on the age, unpack that to teach children the proper names for their private parts, because a perpetrator is going to turn their private parts into a toy or plaything. They're going to give nicknames to it and make it seem like it's a game. Also, when you call a private part by something, your elbow is your elbow, your knee is your knee, your earlobe is your earlobe. When we get to your private parts, you call them something else like a winky or a daisy or whatever. It actually, the child picks up on it and it adds a dimension to shame. Like this is something that apparently we have to call it some weird name because it's kind of this weird, shamey body part thing that we don't ever really talk about. So it actually builds in shame to it. Hmm. Uh, so private parts, the proper name for private parts is really important because if a perpetrator is going to touch their private part and they say, stop touching my fill in the blank, that's unnerving actually. And, and it's also good for investigations because they can be really clear on what happened. So mm-hmm. it removes the shame and it sets up a defense against a perpetrator. Third, and again, these can all be unpacked if we need to, invite your child's communication. We've talked about that one already. Fourth is talk about touch. And it's, don't call it good touch or bad touch. I mentioned this earlier. Some, some bad touch, some sexual assault touch actually feels good. So it's really confusing. Don't call it if they go, wait a second, it felt good, but that was bad. I guess I'm bad. I'm dirty because I liked, you know, I liked the bad touch. No, use inappropriate, inappropriate. It's clunky language, but it's really helpful. Mm-hmm. So uh, talk about touches. Tell them what appropriate touch is. Tell them what inappropriate touch is. Uh, tell them um, I, when, I, my, when my girls were young, I used to play the tickle game with them. This is actually just to set them up. I would tickle, 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 and I, they knew if they said stop or no more, dad would stop immediately. Hmm. And and I just wanted them to get used to, hey, I'm in charge of how I'm touched. And if I want my dad, and they just asked me to tickle, and, hey, tickle me. I'm like, okay, tickle, 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 stop, no more, and then do that. So talk about touch. Fifth is don't ask your child to maintain your emotions. Um, don't, don't, one, this came, and I know better. And one time I was bummed out about something, and I was like, I'm really sad. Can daddy have a hug? Like, that's normal, but and that my wife didn't say anything like, watch it, you know, stop doing that, Justin. She just said, hey, be, be aware of that. Don't ask your daughters who are six to maintain your sadness. Like, don't get into the place where we're leaning on them emotionally for more than a little five or six-year-old heart can bear. Um, it's not their job to make me feel better when I'm sad because that's a perpetrator move. Um, hmm. Six, throw out the word secret. Don't ever use the word secret because a perpetrator will. Again, all these moves are defensive moves against a perp. Um, they'll, they'll say, hey, this is our secret. Let's keep this a secret. If you break the secret, I'll hurt you or hurt your family. Throw out the word secret because that's a category that a offender will use. Use surprises. Secrets can be dark and isolating. Surprises, they're happy. And, uh, and our children have become a little bit vigilant like a, a – one of their friends is like, hey, I want to tell you a secret. I'm going to invite you to my birthday party. Well, <laughs> that's really a surprise. And so one, my, my daughter was like, no, don't tell a secret. <laughs> you, you, have to, you have to help them calibrate what we mean by that. Um, again, all age appropriate. Throw out the word or throw out the game doctor. Don't play doctor. Kids have no need to play doctor. Play vet. Go get a – don't let kids play doctor and explore each other's body parts in that way because, again – it makes their body a game and plaything, which is not a good thing for them to be doing. Eight, identify who to trust. We've actually talked about that one already. And then nine is report report suspected abuse immediately. 
parents and youth workers and myself, we are not experts. We report, don't investigate. Hmm. Parents can kind of do baseline of investigating, but if, if you have any reason to think, call the authorities, let them do it. Um, I, 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 when I get calls from churches, they go, Hey, we think this is happening. I don't insert myself to investigate. I don't encourage them to investigate, find out as much information as you can. And then let the authorities don't, don't investigate report. That's the key thing is just report it. And worst case scenario, hopefully you're wrong. (laughs) That's Mm. the worst case scenario is actually the best case scenario. Um, and it sets the tone really well for protection and culture. So those are the big things for children. Um, now, you can do those that are age appropriate. Other things that I kind of wanted to unpack what churches can do, if, mm-hmm. if I can put this together. Is that okay? Absolutely. Okay. So things that churches should be doing is, one, is churches and ministry staff people need to get trained in preventing, recognizing, and responding to abuse. So how do we prevent abuse? What are the ways that pre- preventing abuse can be done? Um, that, that unpacks one subcategory, which is policies and procedures. If your church or ministry does not have policies and procedures, you need them. It protects the youth. It also protects the youth workers and the pastoral staff. Um, for example, in children's ministry, no adult should ever be alone with a child, especially going to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, the... Um, you know, ask the parents, are we allowed to change the diapers? Do you change the diapers or do you not allow workers to change the diapers? Um, children should never be alone. What about the windows? How many youth, uh, how many, how many adult supervisors need to be for every number of child children? Um, what's the protocol? What's the training for the, what's the policy and procedure for the training of youth workers or children ministry people? So preventing, is the policies and procedures recognizing get trained in recognizing what it would look like so if a child starts saying certain things well you need to be aware huh that's an indication and then how do you respond to a, a charge or how do you deal with it so getting trained in preventing recognizing responding is key and you mentioned in my bio that i'm on the board for grace mm-hmm. godly response to abuse in christian environments we have we actually have training for these things, prevention, recognition, and response uh, for churches. And and we have some local churches in Orlando that our church is going to do it, and three other churches are going to get together and do it. If you go to netgrace.org, the training is available there. There's other, other ministries that do similar things. So that's one is getting trained. Another is talk about it. Talk about sexual assault. Again, age appropriate, depending on your setting, but talk about it from the pulpit. I've had pastors say, hey, I'm really grateful for the work that you guys have done, but this isn't really an issue in our church. Oh, really? It's not? No, no, we're, no, uh, really good. Uh, Usually they think because the church is well off and socioeconomically everything's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Sexual assault doesn't know age, uh, socioeconomic, uh, race, uh, religion. It doesn't know any of those boundaries. Um, so, and I, what I don't think needs to be done is I don't think you need to make like, Hey, we're going to do sexual assault awareness week. No, go ahead and do it. If you want to, you don't need to do a whole sermon on it or a youth group teaching, but you could, and this is what I've encouraged people to do. This is what I do. I've never preached a sermon on sexual assault. Um, what I have done is I go, this is the grace of God. Jesus did this. 
uh, he, you know, the Father planned redemption. Jesus accomplished redemption. The Holy Spirit applies redemption. Now, the wonderful, extraordinary mercy and grace that the triune God secured for us who have faith in Christ, it applies to everything. It applies to the sins that we've done. It applies to our bad behavior. It applies to our betrayal of other people, uh, our theft. It it applies to the ways we've suffered from our addictions to to the ways that we've been sinned against, to the abuse that you've encountered when you were 3 or 13 or 23 or 33 or 43 or 83. Just mention it in the list of things to which the grace of God applies. Um, If you want to say more, you can. Or... Uh, kind of sprinkle it in because what that what that signals if you're doing a youth group teaching like hey you know what we suffer and we sin in various ways and here's ways that we sin we do these this, these are ways that we suffer and one of them betrayal from friends uh, inappropriate touch sexual abuse um, again all age appropriate but when you say that it signals to that person that you might know what you're talking about and that you might not be shocked if they told you their story because mm-hmm. it's on your radar screen. So it signals to them, that might be a person I could talk to. And that's how I've seen it done. I've seen, I, I, like I mentioned earlier, we have 84 churches in our geographical region in our diocese. And I've encouraged pastors to do this. One pastor did it. And in one Sunday, two women, one who was, the reason I picked 83, one was 83 and the other one was 65, both came to him after the service and told him for the first time that they ever told anyone what happened to him when they were younger, wow. when they were, when they were, one was a preteen and the other one was a teenager because they realized, Hey, we trust our pastor. He's the agent, one of the agents of God's kindness and goodness to us. He just mentioned sexual abuse and grace. I'm going to go talk to him. So for the first time in 80, almost 80 years, one woman told her story um, that's what happens when you actually talk about it from the pulpit. And then make sure you have um, whatever your philosophy and theology of pastoral care and counseling is. Um, uh, for us in our, our denomination, you can't meet with someone more than three times about the same issue before you refer them to a specialist. Um, whatever, whatever it is, make sure the pastoral and non-pastoral staff have the pastoral care training and the counseling training, or you have or and – and you have a referral system. Um, we're, we're blessed in Orlando because we have Reformed Theological Seminary with their master's in counseling program. We have a lot of counselors who have come here to get trained and then they stay here for their practice. We have spectacular counselors all over Orlando. It's really easy. Many of them go to um, area churches that we know and trust and all that. That makes it wonderfully easy. When your therapist is uh, in a church that you're friends with the pastor in, that makes it really, really good. So build out that referral network if you can't handle it. And I, just so everyone hears it again, um, I, I do the best I can with, with people when I hear stories. And sometimes talking to me is what, um, someone in my, the church where I serve needs, but I've referred numerous times every year. I'm referring to local experts. That way you're just building the team. It's like, okay, I want you to go to this counselor. This counselor is going to be there for your therapist as your therapist. I'm here as your pastor. I'm happy to work together. You might need to go talk to your doctor um, or a psychiatrist also, but let's have a team of people who are here to help you depending on the intensity of the emotions and what you're dealing with. Um, or you don't need to tell me anymore if you want to go have that relationship with the, your, your, your Christian counselor. So um, mm-hmm. I think those are, I think those are uh, 
good handful of things that churches should be considering. Yeah, that's helpful. I wanted to go back as you, you referenced kind of, you know, the Sunday school setting and a parent to never be alone with a child, especially, you know, going to the bathroom. And maybe, you know, as I'm thinking about youth ministry specifically, you know, I'm thinking of oftentimes, you know, there are retreats where you're with students and, you know, you're traveling and you're sleeping under the same roof together and all of that. Uh, what are some, maybe some cautions or some word of advice just specifically to youth ministry? Is there, there's some unique scenarios that definitely occur in that, in that ministry. Yeah, honestly, um, getting really clear about, uh, what those policies and procedures are one for chaperones and youth ministers on, uh, jokes. What kind of things will you joke about? And if someone crosses the line, you got to drop the hammer hard. Like we just don't, there's certain things that are off limits. So be aware Mm of humor and have a policy on that. Have a policy on what does physical contact look like? Um, um, you know, is it going to be high fives? Is it going to be what kind of hugs? There's no that way. There's no confusion. Um, what mandatory train background checks? Well, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm throwing like five out at one time. So <laughs> uh, humor, physical contact, transportation. There's you know, are you ever allowed to be alone with someone? Mm-hmm. Of, same or opposite sex. It doesn't really matter. Um, what about the training for volunteers and youth ministry workers? Um, what about, you know, if you have a curfew of, if you're traveling under, if you're going to be in the same, under the same roof, what are the rooms and does everyone know not to violate it? Does everyone know that you drop the law pretty hard that if someone violates it, they get flown back on the parent's dime or they get sent back immediately. You got to have a zero tolerance policy when it comes to this kind of stuff. Um, youth workers should never be taking off any of their clothes. There's, you know, unless you're in a pool, um, then, you know, there's no reason for your shirt to come off, no matter how proud you are of your, your weightlifting strategy, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. I've seen this. This is the, the I've seen the youth minister, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> I've seen the youth minister, uh, take off their, their shirt and playfully, they weren't trying to seduce anyone. They were just being goofy and stupid. Um, <laughs> um, watch what you watch what people post online. You have to have a policy on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so those are, those are, and, uh, and you, many times when you start raising the bar, you will be the one, the youth minister is the one who will be asking the questions and they'll probably get they could get flat from the senior pastors or the session or the vestry, depending on what your polity is. Um, churches will frequently push back and say, hey, we don't want to create a culture of fear with all these policies. We just want to be a family. It's like, well, that that's stupid. Um, <laughs> uh, well, it's good to not be a culture of fear, but it sure is fearful for the one person who actually is sinned against in this yeah. way. Um so kind of be ready for that. Say, oh, we just want to be responsible. Um, many church insurance companies actually require some type of training, and they would encourage it. Um, so those are some of the policies just off the top of my head that I can think of. Do you have any that you that you have in mind? No, I, th- I think all of those are helpful. I mean, as you said, I mean, background checks for sure. I mean, that, that's something that, that's that's big. I mean, some of what we did, and again, kind of referencing your book, Rid of My Disgrace, uh, whenever – uh, you know, youth were coming into the youth ministry for the first time, we'd have a parent orientation. And some of that was just kind of having an open conversation with parents about this issue. 
And and again, I mean, we use your book to, to cite some of those statistics and just say, look, as a youth ministry, we want to be really sensitive to this. We want to be very cautious with this. I mean, we want to be, as you, you talked about, being in the car alone with students, you know, never being in their room alone. I mean, just telling them we're aware of this and we're aware of all of the chaperones that we get to, to come on any kind of trip uh, that, you know, we just wanted them to know this is something we have thought about and uh, this is something we take very seriously. And so I think just... Kind of, you know, for the youth workers who are listening, I mean, having this as a conversation with with your parents, just so you're all on the same page and they know that you're, you know, making an effort uh, to protect the children. Because again, and we've said this numerous times on this podcast, that our children don't belong to us, they belong to the Lord, and we are to steward these children as gifts. And so this is just one of those ways in which we can steward them. So that's that's all very helpful um, what information. Happens, what happens with the background checks, this is really good, is... <clears throat> Now, sometimes you won't find anything on the background check. The background check can divulge some information. If someone has something in their past that would be on a background check, they likely won't be applying to serve in youth ministry if they know there's a background check. But what it does is it signals to everyone. So it's both substantive but also symbolic. It says to the person applying, we take this seriously. We're doing background checks. It says to the parents. It says to the youth. It says to the entire culture, we take this seriously. Um, the other thing that we've done is, and I've encouraged churches to do this is actually have an application and it could be a really simple application, but you're applying to volunteer and you have to sign on like, okay, we're going to do a background check. Um, are you a registered sex offender? Are, have you ever been, uh, charged with a crime? I mean, you can find templates for this in various places, um, charged with a crime, uh, do you understand? Do you understand the the manual, the policies and procedures that we will do, and that there's a zero tolerance policy on this? Um, that way, if someone violates it, and that's the thing is, watch for this is for everyone: parents, youth ministers, and pastors, whoever's listening. Watch for the person that needs to break the rules on the policies and procedures, because that's a telltale sign that they don't. If those are in place to protect everybody, it's protecting the youth. And it's protecting the youth workers and volunteers and ministers. Those policies are in place. The person who has to break the rule, there's always an excuse. Oh, well, I just figured it was down the road around the corner. That's why I took that student home Hmm. by myself. There's always a reason, and none of them are good. Well, I was was texting. You need to have a policy on texting students on Instagram, on Facebook, on all social media. There should be no individual communication with a youth worker and anyone under their care in ministry. There's no reason, unless the parent knows and they have signed off on it, that they will be texting. Uh, there's no reason to create that type of thing because what ends up happening is next thing you know, they're texting. They end up direct messaging, and next thing there's emotional stuff going on, and then it translates into physical stuff, and then you have a train wreck on your hands of pain and sin and crimes being committed. So have policies on that also. Mm, yeah, very important caution uh, and warning for for sure. Um, Justin, we're, we're wrapping this up. And uh, before we close out, I did want to end you know, on this, that if there's someone out there who's listening to this and they think they've been abu- abused or are currently being abused and they don't know what to do, uh, what advice or counsel uh, would you give them? You know, maybe specific websites, resources, phone lines you can point them to. What, what's some advice? Well, 
uh, you can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline, which is 1-800-656-4673. 1-800-656-4673. And it's uh, connected to Rain Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. So that's one thing is talk to them. Talk to someone that you can trust. Uh, again, that could be a parent, but if the parent's a perpetrator, it could be a youth minister. If the youth minister perpetrator, it could be a pastor. Could be a uh, could be a, a, a guidance counselor at school. Could be your teacher. Could be your doctor. Could be your coach. Find someone that you trust and talk to them, um, or a pastor or a police officer. I mean, if you need to, just call the police. So hmm. make sure you find someone that can can uh, get you in a safe place. That's the first thing is get safe. The second thing is get help. So get safe, get away from the abuse, do whatever you can to make it stop by having justice done. <laughs> and then second, get help. Um, that's why we wrote Rid of My Disgrace. It's for uh, victims or survivors of sexual abuse, and it's gospel-centered, hope and healing, um, or there's other books out there. There's, there's, we're not the only only book around um, we did write ours because there wasn't any. They were all mm-hmm. for sexual sexual abuse, child sexual abuse survivors. And uh, there's a lot more that are not – that's not their story. So get help. Get pastoral help. Get therapeutic help. Get people – you um, you know, you're, you're an image of God. So regardless of what you believe about Jesus, you're an image of God, and God's common grace applies to you. God doesn't like the destruction that took place against you, and that's not the way it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And God's intent is not for you, regardless of your faith in Christ, is not for you to suffer and uh, suffer under destruction. Uh, now, for those that do have faith in Christ, you're a child of God. And uh, in addition to the wonderful common grace of being an image of God, you have a special relationship and. This is not what he has for you. Uh, he, you don't deserve this. This isn't karma. This isn't discipline. It's actually the work of the evil one who hates your savior. And the reason uh, Satan wants destruction, because he hates images of God, and he really hates images of Christ. Hmm. <laughs> and he wants, he, he, wants to, he wants to harm God. The best way he can do it is to strike against his image bearers and his, his adopted children of, uh, in his family. So this is not what God has for you, and there is hope and healing. Um, the hope and healing can be right now. The, the light can break into the darkness. It won't be done until Jesus comes back. So you might walk with a limp for the rest of your life. Um, what happened to me, I mentioned, wasn't as traumatic as it could be emotionally for some people. But there's still stuff in my life. I still remember when my wife, um, when I told my wife what happened to me, mm-hmm. and uh, I wasn't ready for it. I, we were we were engaged, and I said, "Hey, I just want to tell you something. Um, this is what happened to me." And she goes, "Oh no, I'm so sorry. I didn't know." I mean, her response was really sweet, and I said, "Well, um, one of the ways I dealt with it was." I didn't go asexual. I had, I, I went the other direction. I misused uh, the, I missed use sex. The very thing that was used against me, I used, I got my hands on the weapon before someone else could put their hand on the weapon again is mm-hmm. basically how I described it. 
and said, so I misused it. So uh, that's one of the effects. I'm responsible for it, but that is one of the effects. And her kindness was spectacular. She became, uh, she became the mouthpiece of God's kindness to me. As you can tell, you know, 12 years later, it still mm. is powerful. So, but the, but the, the effects will be there, but um, they could go away. I mean, God can erase them and he can make them, like, he can just heal them. But you might be there for a while. We might be there for the rest of your life, but it will all be well. He wipes away every tear. He's making all things new. And there will be a time when there will be no more sin and no more effects of sin. And uh, kind of hold on till you get there. And basically um, keep going where you know the goodness is. Keep, keep going to church. Uh, don't withhold the meeting together with one another and go where the ordinary means of grace are. I mean, go to go where people will be preaching the word faithfully and reminding you of your identity and who God is and go, you know, where the sacraments are rightly administered. Go, go feast at the Lord's table on a regular basis and be reminded that you belong there because of Jesus. That's your table because you're the Lord's and that you're in allegiance with him. Um, it's the means of grace and that means of grace is full and avail yourself to it as much as you want to and as much as you can. Hmm. Amen. Yeah, a great place to end is, is the gospel there. And and like you're saying, just those who are listening, not to remain silent, uh, to speak up, to, to get help, um, for sure. Uh, but some very good words there. And Justin, can I thank you enough for the, the time that you've taken with us today and pray that the Lord would use this mightily uh, for his kingdom, but then also thanking you and Lindsay for writing Rid of My Disgrace, um, as well as God Made All of Me. I would recommend those resources. I mean, any ministry would benefit from Rid of My Disgrace and then the home for sure to have God made all of me. Uh, so Justin, uh, thanks again for all your work. My pleasure. And thanks for the honor and privilege of uh, jumping on with what you're doing with the podcast and hopefully influencing for thousands and thousands of people and families. Amen. Well, thanks again. God bless. Come and buy without money. Oh, come and feast without pay. Yeah,